0: Well, church, it's a delight to be able to uh, gather together and worship our God, even though we we can't gather in in person. I trust we're gathering in spirit, and I hope and pray that you've already been blessed, as I have, as we uh, consider the truths as Mark lays out for us of our Lord's final days here upon this earth, this crucifixion of our Lord and this evening, I would like to be able to continue to, to share about our Lord's work on the cross with you. Um, I'd like to do so from the Gospel of John. And so if you would, you would t- find in your Bible, uh, John chapter 19, and uh, we will consider a, a handful of verses that John uh, lets us see as our Lord is dying on the cross. And so there we are in John 19, beginning in verse 25, hear now the word of God. knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, and so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Will you please pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we're thankful that we can consider these truths. We're thankful that we can sing your praise, sing in honor of our crucified Savior this evening. And we are chiefly thankful of what Jesus has done for us, that we might be reconciled to you, that he would endure our Sin and pay our debt and bear our transgressions that you might pour your wrath out on him instead of us, that we might be forgiven and might be reconciled to you, our great God and Heavenly Father. And so, help us now, even as we are far away, longing to be gathered, help us to have our spirits lifted, our hearts filled with truth knowing what Christ has done for us according to your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Lord, we know, uh, spoke from the cross. We know that he spoke a word of mercy for the wicked, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He spoke a word of hope to the dying saying to the thief today, you will be with me in paradise. He spoke a word of compassion to the broken, saying, woman, behold your son. He spoke a word of despair to God, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He spoke a word of submission to the crowd, saying, I thirst. He spoke a word of triumph to his people, declaring, it is finished, and it spoke a word of yielding to the Father, saying, "Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit." Seven times the Lord spoke from the cross. Jesus, or excuse me, John records three of those sayings. I would like to be able to share with you the three sayings of Jesus from the cross according to John's Gospel here in John 19. You notice, first of all, that Jesus offers a word. Of compassion, a word of compassion. We've heard already read for us this evening a Mark's account, and Mark, like the other gospel writers, display that this final day of Jesus as a day of bitterness and cruelty and wickedness. And, and full of despair, and yet when we come to John's gospel, we're blessed because John allows a, a, a little shaft of light to shine down upon the cross in this very dark day, as we see that Jesus is not completely forsaken. For note what John says there in verse 25 of chapter 19, but standing by the cross of Jesus, were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary... Magdalene. And so what, what we learn is that 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 there are those who are gathered there out of their love for Jesus. Now if you read John's account and the other accounts, you see there's all sorts of people there that are drawn to the cross. The Jews, of course, are drawn there out of their murderous hearts for Jesus. The Roman soldiers are there uh, because of their despicable duty that they had before them. The thieves, of course, were stuck there by their own rebellious acts. Mockers would would be gathered there out of their own perverse glee. And we see all these people coming to, to the cross out of great wickedness in their heart. And yet we read in verse 25, you see that very first word, it says, but, but, It's not all that were there. There were a handful drawn there out of their loving devotion to Jesus. And then in verse 25, we see John lists the four of them, four women, in fact. We see that his mother was there uh, as as drawn, I'm sure, out of her love for her son as she uh, watches her son's murder um, there uh, with him as he dies in utter agony. She was not alone. She brought her sister with her who John does not name, but we know from other Gospels that her name is Salome. And we see, we see two, two other women, two other Marys. Well, one, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and then, of course, Mary Magdalene, who Jesus had liberated from demonic oppression and who will, of course, uh, play such an important role just a handful of days on Sunday, uh, uh, truths we, we look forward to rejoicing in. And so these four women are drawn there to to Jesus, but they're not not alone. There's actually a man with them, as you see in verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved. And so there with the four women is the beloved disciple, the unnamed disciple in John's gospel. Of course, we know it's none other than John himself. You, You might know that in John's gospel, when he writes his gospel, he'll never mention his name. Uh, but he'll often refer to himself as, as the beloved disciple. And so uh, there John is with these four women, and uh, Jesus is dying, as we know, but he will not die alone, as, as these five are gathered there out of their love for him to care for Jesus in his final hours. And yet, is it not extraordinary that Jesus would instead care for them? Jesus seems to survey the situation, seeing his mother, knowing that she is at this very hour losing a son, he provides for her a new one. For we read in verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. You see, Mary is losing her son. But she is not losing her son in the way she thinks she is. Undoubtedly, she thinks she is losing her son because of his death. But we, of course, know that's only going to last a handful of days. Death is not going to keep Jesus away. Instead, she is losing her son because of Jesus' coming glorification. That the relationship between Jesus and his mother is changing. In fact, you kind of get the hint of that the way he refers to her, calling her their dear mother. That's not a sign of dis or dear woman, excuse me. Not a it's not a sign of disrespect, but Jesus, I believe at this point, is speaking to her as as her savior not simply her son, which, of course, is a far more important relationship. And from the moment of his earthly death, he would, he would cease in, 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 in most ways to be the earthly son of Mary and instead become her heavenly savior. That's why we see in Acts chapter 1 is Mary is gathered there together in order to worship the Lord Jesus. And here on the cross, out of his great love for her, he honors her. He honors his mother and he does so even at this point in his life, which I just think is, is absolutely extraordinary, that, that, that he is, as we know, bearing the sin of the world at this time. He is, he is enduring unimaginable physical pain, and on top of that, uh, uh, uncomprehensible spiritual agony, now being, as we saw in Mark's gospel, abandoned by the Father himself, and, and, and drinking that cup of God's wrath down to the very bottom. The, the, the cup that he prayed would pass from him. And it's, it's at that point, in the midst of all this happening in Jesus' life, he is thinking not of himself, but of, but of those who are standing before him. And I, I am struck once again, how wonderful is Jesus. And how utterly different he is from me and from you, who we, if I think we're honest, live the majority of our life preoccupied mentally and emotionally with ourselves. And especially when we're in pain or discomfort, who are we thinking of? I mean, you stub your toe, and you don't have the ability to think of anybody other than yourself. And Jesus is bearing the weight of the world's transgression, and yet he's caring for the The people arrayed before him. And I'll tell you, the love that Christ displays here, the compassion which he has, continues even to this day. It continues even in your own life. And I I think it's extraordinarily important to realize that, of course, that we know our Lord is bringing about a worldwide redemption. He has an eternal plan that is on its scale cosmic. It will involve all of creation. He is bringing that sovereignly to completion, headed for that great day. And yet, at the same time, he cares for us as individuals. He cares for us personally. I don't, I don't know how you're passing your days in, in these times of shutdown. One of the ways in which the carnation is doing so, we're getting the old jigsaw puzzles out and we got them spread out on the table. And if you, you get a puzzle out and you pick up a piece, you don't really care about that individual piece Uh, you only care about it insofar that it completes the larger picture. What you really are after is the completion of the puzzle, the picture in which you have created. So you don't look at one piece and say, well, piece! I really love you. This is my favorite piece of all the puzzles. Or like this piece over here, you look at all the pieces and think, I just love each piece individually. We don't do that. We want to put the pieces together to get to some end. And I think this is quite often how leaders work. They, they don't care about your own personal struggles. They just care about how you fit into their great plan. And yet, once again, we see how different Christ is. Because he does have a plan. It is a glorious plan. He is bringing it to completion. But he does not do so for the say, at, the, at the sake of the caring for the individual. And so please be assured this evening, that Christ cares for you. He has compassion on you. He will leave the 99 to go find the one that is lost and that compassion is even seen on this cross his, uh, his interaction with Mary and and I, I just want to mention for a moment what of his treatment with John of course John is there and John has not had a good day as you know as we have already seen that 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 John along with all the other apostles fled from Jesus in Jesus moment of greatest need he was a coward he was totally preoccupied with self and willing to let his, his, his rabbi, his lord, his master be arrested just so he can escape and now he approaches the, Jesus who is now crucified in front of him and how is it that John meets Jesus there on top of Calvary's hill? Is it with a stern rebuke or a look of scorn from his crucified savior? No. He who cannot for a single hour stand and watch. He who fled and, and abandoned his Lord in the time of testing receives no rebuke from Jesus, but rather gets, receives this incredible privilege to be able to provide loving care for his mother. Now I mention that because there might, might be one of you ...who's listening to this message... And you, like John, for a time had followed Jesus, but life happened and something occurred along the way, whether it be dramatic or, or a slow drip process, and you have found yourself far from Jesus. And you're wondering, how can I ever get back? And when I, if I ever try to come back, how will I be received? What kind of rebuke will, will I have to endure? What will he say? And I'm telling you, uh, based upon the authority of God's word, you can come back to Christ. You can. And he will welcome you with love and compassion and care. May we tonight marvel at the compassion of our crucified Savior. But of course, John explains there is another word that Jesus mentions here in verse 28, a word of submission. We see the word of compassion, now we see a word of submission. For the Bible says in verse 28, after this, Jesus, uh, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. I thirst. If we read the gospel messages, we, we know, of course, of Christ's divinity. It is abundantly clear that he spoke with divine wisdom. He Acted in divine holiness. He displayed divine power. He walked in divine love. You, we see his his, his his activity. It was just a massive display of his, what he claimed to be, none other than God himself. A word from Jesus, and disease fled. The storm was still. The devil departed. The sea was calm. The bread was multiplied. The fish obeyed. The water became wine, and the dead were raised to life. Jesus is no, none other than God himself, and yet we see him say, I thirst. And you might think, well, God doesn't thirst. We thirst. And and in some sense, you would be right. right? Because he is not only truly God, but he he is God in full humanity. And the Gospels likewise prove his humanity to us. He has entered this world... As a babe born to a woman, as a child, he increased in wisdom and and stature. As a boy, he had questions. As a man, we, we read that he grew tired, he hungered, he slept, he marveled, he wept, he prayed, he rejoiced, he groaned, and here we find... That he thirsts, as the writer of Hebrews says, he must be made like his brothers in every respect he has to become exactly like us in order that he might die as our substitute and, and and I think when we put this all together it is once again almost unimaginable it's unthinkable that the maker of heaven and earth has parched lips, that the Lord of Lord of glory is in need of a drink. That he who himself offered living water that we might never thirst again, himself thirsts. That he who announced that if anyone uh, thirsts, let him come to me and drink, he himself thirsts. He who caused water to flow from a rock could, of course, satisfy his need in an instant. But he did not. Why? Why? Why does he hang upon the cross, longing for something to drink? Well, we are told, aren't we? If we read carefully there in verse 28, see that little parenthetical comment? We are told this was to fulfill Scripture. Specifically, Psalm 69, which was written about a thousand years before this event. As we read, for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Well, note verse 29 of John 19. A jar full of sour wine stood there, and so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. We, we read in uh, Mark's Gospel, before the crucifixion, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, which, which was a sedative, it was a deadening agent that, that it might dull the pain in which he was about to endure. Jesus refused that. But here they offer him wine vinegar, as was foretold by the psalmist, and he takes it here. And I don't believe so. He does an attempt to find relief. He does so in order to fulfill the Scripture, to submit to God's plan for him. Jesus is, is so steeped in the Bible that he knows there is a prophecy yet to be fulfilled. You see in verse 28, knowing that all was finished, like all the work is done, okay, it is complete, and yet uh, the death being imminent, everything being done, it seems seems like Jesus says, okay, okay, there, but yeah, there's one prophecy left to be fulfilled, and so he seeks after to fulfill that ra- rather than yielding up his spirit as he will in a moment, for he came here, of course, not to do his own will, but the will of the Father. And so I think it would be right and good for us to marvel at the submission of our crucified Savior. Well, John has one final word that Jesus utters on the cross for us, and we might call it a word of triumph. We see a word of compassion, a word of submission, and a word of triumph. For what do we read in verse 30? When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. I'm sure many of you listening to this sermon uh, know the Greek word that we sometimes like to share. uh, That is translated into the English, it is finished. The Greek word, of course, is tetelestai. Tetelestai. It is finished. Now, it's very important that we're careful here because Jesus is not saying... I am finished. He, this is not the final groan of a victim. This is not the cry of defeat. This is not even a declaration of a man resigned to his dreadful fate. No, this is instead something rather, rather different, isn't it? This is the proclamation of a victor. It is the shout of triumph. It is finished all the work in which he has come to do is now fully accomplished so we say with great joy in our heart do we not it is finished it is finished it is finished now we might think okay well what what's he talking about what is finished well of course we've already saw now haven't we the 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 prophecy that foretold his first coming is now complete is fulfilled He, of course, was born of a virgin of the seed of Abraham from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of David, just as was foretold. Where sorrow would accompany his birth, he'd be born in Bethlehem and yet somehow come out of Egypt and at the same time be a Nazarene. The, the lame shall leap, the blind shall see, the mute shall sing praises to God and his coming. He would be poor and needy, he would have no place to lay his head. He would speak in parables, calm a storm, enter Jerusalem triumphantly. He would be despised, rejected by the Jews, and hated without cause. It is foretold that he would be betrayed by a friend, he would be forsaken by his followers, he would be led to the slaughter, he would be taken into in judgment. there would be false witnesses against him. he would refuse to defend himself, there would be an establishment of innocence, there would be an unjust condemnation, there would be a sentence of capital punishment, there would be flogging and disfigurement, there would be the piercing of his hands and feet, and he would be numbered among the transgressors and there would be the mockery of the crowd, the casting of lots for his clothing. And the thirsting and the receiving of sour wine. And we could go on and on. And Jesus declares to telestai, it is finished. It's complete. And yet that's not all that means. Right? We might we might go on and say, Well, this not only the fulfillment of prophecy, but certainly this is the fulfillment of all the law's requirements for righteousness. That Jesus fulfilled the law's demands. There was never a single time in his life, not a single second, in which he is not fully compliant and obedient to God in every thought, word, and deed. For he himself says in Matthew 5 and verse 17, that I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, I have come to fulfill them. And so Christ lives a perfect life, the only man ever, of course, without sin, not even for a moment. Not 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 a sin of commission. Never did he do something he should not do, nor a sin of omission. Never did he do not do something that he ought to do. He fulfilled the law perfectly. He upheld righteousness completely, and so he declares to Telestai, "It is finished." And yet, I think there is more that is finished by our Lord. In fact, primarily, I think what he is declaring is not simply that he has fulfilled the law's demands, but that he has fulfilled. The law's penalty. The law's penalty. That he has now taken the full justice of God upon himself for those who would trust in him. And I, th- I think this is just, of course, this is, this is where, if, if we haven't got there yet, we're certainly here now where Christianity is utterly and totally unique. That, that it is... It is throughout Jesus' life that Jesus continually announces that the point of his life is not his teaching, it is not his miraculous activity, it is not his moral example. The point of his life is his and no other religious founder ever said anything remotely like that. Every other one says, "Okay, I've come to show you the way. Here's the truth. Do this. Do, don't do that." And here's the list of rules. And Jesus said, "Will be a teacher, of course, and will uh, be a, a, pair, a paradigm of, of morality, and he will be a mighty a man and do great acts of wonder and miracles, bringing the kingdom of God." And yet he says, "That's not why I came. Why I came? Well, I came to die." And so we read in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Later in John's gospel, we read, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life. And then even in John 12, consider these words The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so in Jesus' estimation, His death accomplishes something that none of his teaching or his his example could. That Jesus understood his death brings blessings. He he understood his death is what bears much fruit. And of course we know that it is in his death that he is bearing God's righteous judgment... Not for the sins in which Jesus has committed, as we've already established, He has done none, but for the sins that you have committed, and the sins that I have committed. That Jesus came to give His life. He came to die. He came to suffer the penalty for your sin. He came to endure the wrath of God. He came to, to pay for your sin in full. And then He comes to this point on the cross and says, to die it is finished. He has now, at this point, cast your sin behind his back. He has cast your sin in the depth of the sea. He has cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. He he has promised to remember your sins no more. He has stomped on your sin under his foot. He has took the record of your sin, put it in the palm of Jesus, and drove a nail through it into the cross. Though you were stained as scarlet, he has made you white as snow. Now you are covered with the blood of Christ. You are dressed in the garments of pure white. And your sin has been condemned In the flesh of Christ. And there is therefore no salve for your guilty soul other than Christ died for your sin. And there is no other fortress to save us from the righteous fury of God other than Christ died for our sin. There is no other argument before a holy judge other than Christ died for your sin. I need no argument other argument i need no other plea it is enough that jesus died and that he died for me and so so with a triumph with a with a cry that uh, that echoed throughout the universe jesus cries there on the cross the savior exclaims to tell "I, it is finished and so what then do we read well, probably what you would expect. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It's finished. There's nothing left for him to do. Of course, the question might be well, what's left for you to do? And the answer is the same nothing. There's nothing for you to do. You see, Christianity is not a religion of do. It is, it is a religion of what has been done. Right? Everybody else says, here's what you do, this is what you do, do this, don't do that, and all the rest. And certainly there are things, uh, examples for us to follow and commands for us to take, but at the very heart, Christ says, it's about not what you do, but about what I have done. I have finished the work for your salvation. You simply must receive it through faith. And so please understand that Jesus Christ is not just another naked man dying on a Roman roadside pinned to a cross some 2,000 years ago. He is God in the flesh out of great compassion for us and great submission to his Father dies so that we might be saved. And I'll tell you that all of your life, indeed all of your eternal life is determined based upon how you respond to Christ's work Upon that cross. In fact, let me share with you one more scripture, if you don't mind. You notice, if you look down at verse 35. This is John himself writing. He says, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth. That you also may believe. That you also may believe. That is how you receive the work of Christ on your behalf by believing in him, yielding your life to King Jesus. It was in the year 1833 that a, a uh, case came before the Supreme Court concerning a man named George Wilson. George Wilson was a notorious uh, bank robber, and when he wasn't robbing the bank, he was robbing the postal service or the trains, and when he was finally caught, he was sentenced to a life in prison. And yet for some reason lost to history, we know that President Jackson extended him a full and complete pardon. And yet George Wilson refused the pardon. We don't know why. Uh, Maybe he felt guilty for what he'd done. Maybe he liked prison. Um, But he refused to receive the pardon. And and, and the the, the, the warden was in quite a bind. He, He says, I can't keep you here in prison. You've been pardoned. And yet, Wilson says, no, I'm not taking the pardon. I'm staying in prison. That case went all the way to the United States Supreme Court, which it ruled in 1833. A pardon is a deed to the validity of which delivery is essential. And delivery is not complete without acceptance. It may then be rejected by a person to whom it is tendered, and if it is rejected, we have discovered no power in this court to force it upon him. So according to U.S. law, a pardon is not valid unless the one to whom it is given receives it. And so George Wilson spent the remainder of his days in prison, when he could have walked out free. And I'm afraid that so many people live That same life, so many people follow that same path, that salvation is offered, it's offered to you even now if you do not know Christ. It is full and it is free. It is a pardon given to you for everything you have done, everything you will do by God himself. And yet so many say, no, thank you. I will not receive it. I pray that that even as God's Word has been shared with you today. That God would begin to work in your heart and recognize the greatness of what Jesus has done. And the greatness of what He offers you even now. That you would hear those words. It is finished. And that if you do not know Christ as your Savior that you would turn from your sin and trust in Him for your salvation. Yielding your life to Him. And for my Christian brothers and sisters can these truths in which we have Refamiliarized ourselves uh, this evening. Will we not pray that, that God would, would let them inflame our heart, that we would fall more deeply in love with the one who paid so dearly that He might love us, that we would indeed marvel at the great compassion and submission and even the victory of our crucified Savior? One who has died for us. What is it that we sang? Guilty, vile, helpless we. Spotless lamb of God was him. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Our Father, we are once again stunned by the work of our Lord. That he would... Come to this world that he might pay for our sin, that he might deal with our transgressions, that he might remove from us our iniquities, that we might stand before a holy God, might even worship you this evening, might even draw near to you, and we shall one day be in your presence forevermore because of the work of our Lord. Will you please help us to find even greater delight in him? May all that he has done and all that we have considered tonight and all that we have sung and celebrated and rejoiced in, may it not create a greater passion and love for him. May it not purge us from the lingering sins in our life and give us a greater hunger to follow Jesus more faithfully. For we ask it in Christ's name, amen.